0: So, uh, as we kind of move forward into things this morning, I want to start us out with a question to get us thinking about kind of a category of things. Um, The question is, what is the nature of the unexpected? Like, what does the unexpected do to us? What is its power? Well, I think, like, it does a few things. First of all, when we encounter unexpected things, unexpected things show us what we don't know. Right? Like by definition, we expect the things that we know. So unexpected things show us the things that we don't know, right? They make us so so if that's the reality, like what they do is they actually make us grapple with our finiteness, right? That we are not infinite, that there are categories of things that we are unaware of, that we may even have a degree of frailty because to the degree that you can expect things, you can prepare for them. But if you can't expect something, then you can't Prepare for it, right? So ultimately, at the end of the day, I think uh, unexpected things, they do two things. I think they they surprise us, right? And sometimes those surprises are a delight. Sometimes they are not. Unexpected things surprise us, and they humble us, right? Because they show us, reveal to us the category of things that we don't understand. So I want to tell you a story to illustrate this reality about something unexpected for me. Uh, so I, I may have told this story. I can't remember. Uh, but I'll share it with you again anyway. So when I, uh, was preparing to ask my wife, Andrea to, uh, you know, marry me to, uh, to, and we were going to get engaged, right? I had to ask her dad to talk to her dad, uh, about engaging this opportunity. We had to have a conversation about this together. And, uh, and so I, uh, Andrea's dad. We we knew each other a little bit. I, Andrea and I had been dating for three months at this point, point. and as many of you can imagine, uh, that that maybe is a, a little faster than normal of a timeline than you would typically hear about, right? So uh, so on top of that, I had gotten to know Andrea's family a little bit. We didn't know each other super well, and uh, I'll just say I was pretty intimidated by Andrea's dad, right? Uh, I that like that was kind of the the concept that I had when I was going into this. And so I really felt like, you know, I have to get my affairs in order as I go into this conversation, right? I have to uh, be prepared. And, uh, And so I go into the conversation. And it goes extremely well, much better than I even could have anticipated or expected, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, that all sounds good. You know, I, I like you. I think the path you're going on in your life is good. And this is, this is good. I'm, I'm I, You know, I ha- you have the blessing, so to speak. So that's all like, oh, good. Okay, we got through that. And then something unexpected happens. Uh, he says, okay, but you have to do one thing for me, you know, just so you know, uh, I had um, spent uh, weekends, I would like stay overnight Friday night at their house because they lived about 40 minutes away from the, the, where I was going to school at the time, and so, uh, so I would stay in their house, I I was in their house a fair bit in this three-month time period, and, um, and so he says, hey, you just have to do one thing for me, you have to start putting the toilet seat down. (laughs) Like you, you have to do that. Uh, and he was serious. It was not a joke. He was like, I, you, I understand you grew up with a brother. You did not have, like, your mom was the only woman in your house. I get it. You have to start doing this. Like, there's just no way around it. And so, uh, as you can imagine, that was pretty unexpected for me. It both surprised me and humbled me, right? Like, it did both of those things. That was my experience with that. So, um, you know, for those of us in here who believe in Jesus, who are Christians, I would wager that because of the unexpected nature of biblical truths, that many of us have actually become Christians. That the unexpected nature of biblical truths are the things that were compelling to us, right? Because as we think about God and who He is, uh, we have expectations, right? We expect certain ways that He is going to respond to us, and instead, what He does is that He both surprises and humbles us, right? Right? He says things like, "You don't have to prove yourself to me." Right? You will never earn the things that I have to give to you. Right? You are more hopelessly broken than you can begin to imagine. And yet, I'm concerned with offering you a way to find free acceptance with me. Something that you can't earn. I'm concerned with giving you grace. And so the gracious nature of God's love actually surprises and humbles us, and it's very unexpected. So this idea of kind of the unexpected things is what's going to take us into John chapter 11 this morning. So today we're going to continue a series called This Is Life. We're working through John chapters 10 and 11. And in these two chapters, there is this theme about life, what life is, how it is imparted, where it comes from. And so what we've been doing is we've actually been trying to grasp and understand Jesus's kind of understanding and definition of what life is. So uh, we have, over the first two weeks of this series, kind of begun building this definition. So week one is life. It's not defined by the things that it offers us first and foremost, the things that it gives to us. It's defined by who leads us there, right? Life is where the shepherd leads us, right? So we're going to follow him there, and that's what we talked about. Week two, we talked about how life uh, it comes from him, that he himself is the source of life. He is the giver of life. He says, I and the Father are one. And when he says that, what he's saying is like, I have the power to grant eternal life to whom I will. So so both of those realities are true. So for what it's worth, like life is not clarified to us by what it offers, by the one who leads us to it and the one who imparts it. So that's what we've gathered so far. And so, like, the point so far is what we've gone through is, like, you're wondering where life is. Well, based on what Jesus says, like, the encouragement is, start with Jesus, right? If you're wondering where to find life, if you're wondering uh, where abundance is, start with Jesus. And this week, we'll see Jesus revealing something additional about life, and the way he's going to do it is he's going to defy our expectations, So John chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. It says, uh, Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Uh, So, we have right now a situation where we are going to begin to grasp part of this story. What's going to happen is that the sisters are going to send to Jesus. They want to tell Jesus about their brother, but we have to kind of get in our minds uh, the setting of what's going on. So, so Jesus, where is Jesus? Bethany is near Jerusalem. That's where uh, Mary and Martha's village is. Jesus has left the area of Judea. In fact, at the end of John chapter 10, this is what it says in John 10, 40. It says he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. Now, the place where John was baptizing, uh, tradition has told us that it's just a few miles away from Jerusalem, like downhill from Jerusalem at the Jordan River. But the Jordan River runs very long. It has, in fact, uh, between the Sea of Galilee. So Jerusalem is below the Sea of Galilee. Uh, The Jordan River runs up above the Sea of Galilee, though. And so what's really interesting is we think John was baptizing in a place on the Jordan River pretty close to Jerusalem. In actuality, as people have done research on this, and there's archaeological evidence to suggest this, the place where John was baptizing was actually way up north, close to Galilee, the place where John and Jesus grew up, in the Jordan River, in that portion of the Jordan River. Now, I'll tell you why that matters in just a second. The point is, from where... Uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha is to where Jesus is, is like a four-day journey. It's a very long journey between these two places, which means that when they sent this messenger to tell Jesus, like, that means there's an additional four days that Lazarus is ill before Jesus hears this message about Lazarus. So that's what it says in verse 3. It says, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord... He whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. That word love, um, we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail in just a second. But that word love indicates kind of a personal, familial love. And for what it's worth, in the Gospel of John up to this point, um, we don't witness the personal nature of Jesus' love. Uh, We don't see his love directed uh, explicitly in in the idea that it's saying Jesus loved this person. This is the first time we begin to explicitly notice a very personal love. So I want you to notice this with me, that Jesus has a personal love for this person family. And this is kind of the first piece of what is unexpected about this story, because up to this point, Jesus has been trying to prove concepts to the Pharisees. The gospel of John has been heavy with this. I am uh, the giver of eternal life. I have five witnesses. I want you to believe who I am, but you know, you won't believe because you refuse to hear these things, right? So he has been going through this process with them. But then there's kind of this shift in tone where we hear about a love Jesus has for particular people. And verse four says this. But when Jesus heard it, that the one he loved is ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Right, so that... For what it's worth, that falls very much in line with our expectations. Uh, Jesus is all the time talking about the glory of God, how the things he does are for the glory of the Father and that the Father is going to glorify the Son, right? And so Jesus, he he's aware of the things that are going on. He is aware of the things that give God glory. Uh, Jesus is going to do things that give God glory. Jesus is going to provide a witness. We'll read that in this story. He's going to provide a witness to prove that the words he says about himself are true. All of that is totally expected, especially given his last exchange with the Pharisees, where uh, he was saying, I grant eternal life. And then he was saying, If you don't believe my words, look at my works. Just believe my works, right? Take those for what they're worth, right? So all of that falls in line with expectations. But John is going to clue us into something that continues this change of tone in the passage in verse 5. It says that, you Now Jesus loved. Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So again, we've been told two times very close, right together, about Jesus's personal love for this family. My temptation of focus when I walk into this passage is to say, Jesus is here and he's trying to prove a concept about himself, right? And if all I get is that Jesus is trying to prove something about himself, Right? If that's my focus, I'm actually missing a big part because John keeps interrupting us and saying, actually, this detail about Jesus's very personal love is very important. And for what it's worth, when, he, when John tells us about Jesus's love here, he's actually marking a shift in the kind of love that Jesus has. Uh, so, so this is the first time that uh, Jesus' personal love for other characters in the story is named explicitly in this gospel, but John the writer of the story, what he does is he takes it a step further. Because the first time he said, uh, when uh, the messenger came and said, the one you love is ill, it was a different, uh, we all read all the words for love and they all say love. Uh, but these two words are actually different from each other. Love in verse three is uh, what is called phileo love, right? So the, the city Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, love for one another. It speaks of a very familial affection that you have for one another. But this word in verse five is the word agape. Agape is a self-sacrificial love. It's a much deeper and abiding love. It's a a deeply committed love. So when uh, many people know when the Bible talks about love, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient, that it's kind, that it doesn't seek its own way, that it bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things, that it never fails, right? That is agape love. That's the word that's being used, right here. So what John does is when the messenger says, the one you phileo, the one you love is ill, in verse 5, John comes and tells us, actually, the kind of love that Jesus has for these people far exceeds even what they think his love is, right? It's a deep and abiding love. It's not just an affection. So in religious texts, what we would expect, uh, especially in this religious text. It's been transferred to us through history. What we expect from religious texts is that they instruct us regarding the kind of belief and behavior that we ought to have, right? That's what we expect from religious texts. But this religious text defies those expectations by showing us that Jesus is not simply a concept or an idea, or something that it's trying to prove, but that he is a human person who relates very personally to human experience. That's what this draws out for us. So verse 6, it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When it says so, what it's saying, it's saying that the previous thought that you just read is connected to the next cause of action, that that what he said previously is what caused the next action that he took. It connects what Jesus does next to what was just said about him. So it quite literally says here in verses five and six, because Jesus had a deep and abiding love for Lazarus's family, because of that, He stayed two more days right where he was and didn't go anywhere. Now, remember, they are four days away from Bethany. That's a very long way. And this is a very serious illness. You don't send a messenger to tell people about illness for nothing. But it says, because Jesus loves them, he waits. If that doesn't defy expectations, I don't know what does right? Somehow this deep and abiding love is the thing that made him wait longer than any of us would be inclined to wait. His love is, in fact, connected to his waiting. So, so like, I don't know about you, but that is not the automatic picture I have in my head of what love looks like. So let's go on. In verses 7 and 8, this is what it says. It says, then after this, After the two days that he waited, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and are you going there again? So the last time they were there, it was about December, right? Uh, in that time frame, is two months prior to where they are right now. And things have gotten more and more intense. Every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he makes more and more people mad. And then they want to kill him. And the last time they were there, people had actually prepared to take up stones and stone him to death. That's what happened. And so they left Judea. And they're saying, why would we go back to Judea? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus basically tells them, in the, the verses that precede, he talks about night and, uh, and day, and while it is still day, we have work to do. Essentially, what he's saying is that we still have significant work to do. And so in verse 14, it says that Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Right, so he's gotten some kind of revelation from God because a messenger didn't come and tell him this at this point. But he, he knows now that Lazarus is dead. He says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So I have two questions. I think uh, everybody would reasonably have these two questions as you consider this passage. Number one, if if Jesus truly loved Lazarus, why did he wait? Why? Why? Well, I think the reality is he, he he said two things pretty clearly. Number one, that the the father was going to uh, glorify or receive glory through this, and that the son was going to be glorified through this. Right. So there's something about the glory of the father involved in this, and then he also said, just previously, that these things are being done so that people might believe. Right. So so what he acknowledges is that like he knows the father is up to something. Right. He has an awareness that even in the midst of this really hard circumstance, like why would he wait? Well, the reason he waits is because the Father is going to receive glory and people are going to believe, right? And for what it's worth, John thinks belief is pretty important. It's the whole reason he wrote down all the words in his book, right? So people are going to believe in Jesus. And then uh, my second question is this, right? If Jesus truly loved Lazarus, how could he? Wait, Which is a more important question, right? Because this is our experience of love. If somebody I love is sick, I am not going to wait uh, around. I'm going to follow every impulse inside of me and go exactly to where they are. And on the surface, what this does is actually it can make Jesus seem cold and calculating, right? Because he knows things about the Father's glory, and he knows things about people believing. And so he's like, oh, I better wait two more days here in this place. Uh, And it actually, it could indicate that he's kind of removed from the experience of this family, right? But that's not true. The reason he could wait, or the how could he wait, is that uh, this is true, that he knew the result of waiting, would be worth the pain, right? He knew it not in a cold and distant way. He knew it in a deep sense of feeling the distance from these loved ones of his, right? And wanting, like Jesus actually wanting to resolve their pain, wishing that they didn't have to go through what they're going through right now. All of that is inside of him, but his love in this instance was so strong that he could not obey his impulses to rush in and resolve their pain, but that actually he was going to allow the pain to be prolonged because he loved them for an astronomically better result than any of them could have imagined. So it's Jesus' love that actually makes him resist the impulse to immediately resolve the pain. So this story goes on in verse 17. It says, now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, four days is important just for what it's worth. A Jewish rabbinic teaching held this. This is what they taught people in that day. It held that the soul would hover near the body for three days. After you die, your soul kind of hovers around your body for three days. This is not what the Bible says. This is what Jewish rabbinic teaching of the day said. And that on the fourth day, the soul would depart the body and go to uh, Sheol, the place of the dead. Right? So, in the tradition of mourning, because what mourners would do is that they took this information and they would actually, because the soul in their mind was still near the body, they would sit next to the body and they would have people called watchers who would shoo away rodents uh, from around the body, who would tend to the body, who would read psalms uh, by the body because they knew that the soul was still present and even could be still interacting with those, those psalms that they were reading. But then on day four, they knew that the soul was gone now what this meant is that until day four uh, there's kind of all the mourners kind of uh, had this culture of holding on to hope that something might happen in those three days that somehow this person might revive in some way but then on day four like once day four is passed all hope is lost that's why it matters that it says uh, four days that Jesus, said that he had been in the tomb four days, because at this point in the story, all hope is lost for Lazarus. He loved them, so he waited, so that he would arrive on the day that hope had entirely disappeared from this family. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This is a common practice. In fact, people would be hired to do this. They would hire mourners to come out and weep and wail for days on end to recognize the gravity of what happens when a person loses their life. So verse 20, says, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Uh, You might be inclined to read this as an accusation. I want to encourage you not to do this. Um, uh, Commentator Gerald Borchert says this. He says, these words are those of a grieving person who desperately wished it could have been different but who has recognized that the inevitable had come to pass. She has resigned herself to her present circumstance, right? But she so desperately wishes that things could have been different when she approaches Jesus. And then she confesses her faith. She says, even though you weren't here, I know that future hope is still in your hands. I know that you still have this kind of relationship with the father where whatever you ask, like he will grant it, right? I understand this, right? And she's letting him know that that even though she wished he could have been here earlier, she's glad that he's here now because he can still speak to God about Lazarus' eternal life. That's kind of the idea that she has in her head. I know that you still have this kind of relationship with God. So verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha, Martha, so Jesus says, Your brother will rise again. And Martha says, Well, you've said what I expected you to say. Right? I I know about this. This is, uh, yes, Jesus, I I know about these things that you're trying to do. Now, in all of this, what Jesus is doing, Jesus is making an attempt to comfort Martha because he loves her. He's trying to use words that comfort Martha because he loves her. He's trying to restore some kind of hope in her, but uh, she kind of lets what she thinks Jesus is saying influence how she receives his words, right? So, When Jesus says he's going to live again, Martha hears Jesus talking about life in a very conceptual kind of way. Ah, yes, Jesus, I know that theological concept. Thank you for reminding me of that. Ah, yes, Jesus, I'm aware of that idea that you tell us about, about the resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding me of that. Oh, yes, I know all about that day that is very far, far away, off in the future. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding me of that. Thank you. I remember those concepts. So Jesus, in an an attempt to kind of break her out of her stupor, says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I tend to stay away from incredibly weighty illustrations when I talk about this, but I, uh, I, it just fits so well that I have no choice but to engage it. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Christian songwriter, singer-songwriter, uh, in uh, I want to say 2009, 2010, sometime in that time frame, um, a tragedy hit his family. Uh, he, uh, his son, his uh, one of his sons was driving and was pulling his car into the driveway, and uh, his five-year-old daughter was with her sister, and she was so excited to see her brother that she broke away from her sister and ran out into the pathway of the car and was run over by the car and died. That's, That's what happens to his family. And so they all were at the hospital. The whole family was together at the hospital. And uh, he sees his son, and his son is just despondent in the emergency room, just wrecked by this thing that has happened. And he goes up, and he grabs his son, and he says one thing over and over and over again. He says, it's real. It's real. Weeping with him, he says, it's real. It's real. Jesus is not just communicating concepts to Martha. He is not simply proving some point about his identity to her. He is in real time caring for her. He says, Martha, it's not just an idea. It's real. It's real. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not something that's far away from you and separated from you. I am right here with you. I am Lazarus' life, and I am here right now. It's real. I gave him new life before he died and promise him life now, even in his apparent death. News of his demise is greatly exaggerated. I am real. Do you believe me? That's what he says. So verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. She, she couldn't be broken through too in this instance. And she says, ah, yes. Yes, thank you, Jesus. I do believe those ideas that you keep telling us about. Thank you for reminding me of them. Jesus loved her and attempted to comfort her, but her expectations were built very high, and she could not hear the utterly unexpected nature of his words. Imagine his experience. He wants nothing more than for her to be comforted in this time. But it doesn't matter what he says. The words don't break through to her. So verse 28, we'll go on. Uh, When she said this, She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So verse 32, it goes on and tells us more. Uh, Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So just take note, these these interactions are incredibly tender, right? Right? This is not what Jesus did with the Pharisees, right? This is not him telling Mary and Martha about the five witnesses that prove who he is. He's not trying to prove anything to them. He's just simply attuned to what they need. And he's actually in these moments doing the hard work of caring deeply for them. So verse 33, it says this. uh, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. This is like unexpected thing number 111 or something like that. What we are to pay attention to, what John the writer wants us to pay attention to now is the depth of Jesus' love for these two sisters and their brother and how that is causing Jesus significant pain in this moment. Right? He has a deep compassion for them. And when he sees them hurt, it hurts him. He feels their hurt. He hates what has happened to Lazarus. All of this exists inside of him. And verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus, to this point, has been a character in this story who is very confident and very clear and very deliberate, very articulate about his message and his identity. For what it's worth, Jesus knows how this story that we are reading is going to end. Right? He knows what's about to happen, but that does not diminish the weight of his experience in this moment. Right, as he walks towards Lazarus' tomb, and he feels the weight of the experience of this family, he weeps. God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, weeps with them. Is stricken with emotional pain and trouble at the thought of a friend who has died, and he weeps. In this moment, Jesus shows us something about God that is completely unexpected. God is not just a God who just knows the end from the beginning. He does not just kind of randomly arrange the circumstances of our life. He is not cold and distant, but he is in the middle of the hard experience, fully aware of the extent of the hardness, and he weeps over the hardness with us. Right, we don't have time, but if we did a survey of the Old Testament, and the number of times God describes himself as weeping or mourning, uh, He is. Uh, it, it kind of gives us the idea of what actually makes him weep and mourn. Uh, sometimes it's uh, he is allowing or executing some kind of judgment because of sins, and we say, oh, he carries out that judgment because he's angry. Well, he is angry, and at the same time, he is weeping over the fact that he has to carry out the judgment. Right? He is despairing over the consequences of the sin and the difficulties they create, even though the consequences are from him. Every broken part of our human experience is a result of sin, and God is not indifferent to the experience of the brokenness. He loves us too much to be cold and indifferent about it. Right? He hates the brokenness of our experience. He hates that death is in this world. He weeps about cancer and is deeply troubled about paralysis. He mourns with us when we lose loved ones because he had good desires for this world. But our sinfulness has corrupted this world. And therefore, our experience in this world is so far short of what he intended it to be that when we mourn over it, he mourns with us. So let us not move too quickly when we walk into that funeral or help that person reflect on that lost loved one. Let us not move too quickly to telling them, yeah, but they're in heaven now. They're rejoicing. Let's not move too quickly to that before we've adequately taken the time to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. This is not what God wanted. He weeps over it like you weep over it. Because that's what God is saying. That's what Jesus shows his, by his response here. So I want you to be encouraged by this passage from Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. It says this, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus chooses to hurt with us. Like look at the more difficult path that he chose with this family. He could have obeyed his impulse and showed up and perhaps healed Lazarus, right? But he chose to prolong his stay And in prolonging his stay, actually created a more difficult and more weighty and more heavy and more painful situation. But in doing so, he hurt with them. He did not do it to them. He hurt with them. He might have been responsible for it not happening sooner, but he enters into the pain with them. And he chooses to hurt with us because he loves us. So, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him, right? It's noticeable now, his love that he has for Lazarus in verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's not surprising. These people who are called the Jews in this story, uh, they often come up, they create confusion, they create disorder, they don't love Jesus, they're always challenging him. And so uh, so here again, we see that they are kind of split and undecided about what they really think and stirring up some contention in the middle of this moment when people are supposed to be grieving. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Remember, she she said, yeah, I know about those things, Jesus. Thank you for reminding me. of them. Right? She, she missed the believing part, the missed seeing who he actually was. So verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus, in his saying of this, doesn't necessarily break through to her, but she at the very least says, okay, take the stone away. So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Church, it's real. It's not just a concept or an idea. He is not just a concept or an idea. He's real. And he sets right that which is not the way. It's supposed to be. Our main point this morning is this, and this is what I want to draw your attention to. The Jesus who hurts with us relieves the source of our hurt. Right? Death, as the result of sin, is the source of our hurt. Our time is finite. Right? We prefer self over others, and we scramble to hurt others and choose our own way and rebel to make as much of this limited time as we have. And as a result, we also encounter an incredible amount of pain. And as we encounter that pain, he hurts with us, while at the same time offering us a way of relief from its power. Right? When Jesus raised Lazarus from that tomb, he showed us that while he deeply feels the weight of death, he has the power to undo death. He says, it's real. Believe in me and find the relief you need. So what? So what? What are we to do with this? How should we walk away? Number one, I would tell you this. Don't let the coldness of life keep you from the compassion of God. Psalm 34, 18 says this, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We are inclined to let the hard circumstances of our life keep God at a distance and push him away because he has coldly arranged these things and he does not truly understand our situation. And I would tell you that there's nobody who understands your situation better than he does. Don't let the coldness of the experience, keep you from his compassion. Sometimes the very thing you let keep you from God was the thing that was intended to draw you closer to God. So number two, hurting people need to meet a God who chooses to hurt with them, We're not just asking the question of, what does this mean for me as I sit here and receive these words? But what does this mean for the people around me that I interact with, that I see on a daily basis, that I'm at work with, that are my neighbors? And what do hurting people need to know? Like, what good news is here that we can bring to others? Well, there's certainly that part about Jesus raising somebody from the dead. That proves something significant about Jesus. That is really good news. It actually proves that he has authority uh, to say the things that he says, that he is the source of life, that he is leading his sheep to life, right? It proves all of those things. But one of the most beautiful aspects of this passage is that Jesus knows the good that is going to come at the end of the story, but he's there in the middle of the story weeping with Mary and Martha. Right, so, so when we encounter hurting people, we can tell people who've lost someone, you know what? God hates what has happened to you and your family. God hates their death as much as you do more. God sees you. He's weeping with you. We can tell somebody who's sick that, hey, you know what? This may be hard, but as you are hurting, God is hurting with you. Right, how do I know? Because Jesus showed us, right? He showed us clearly. So let them know as you walk by them, let them know that God's compassion for them and their hurt. And if they say something along the lines of, if he cared so much, then why wouldn't he or why would he have X, Y, Z, like whatever it is. If they say that, then listen and be present with them. What you told them just now may not convince them in this moment. But it may return to mind at another most important of moments for them. Because people need to know the good news of a God who knows what it is to be human. Church, would you pray with me, please? Jesus, we thank you for the gift that we have this morning of recognizing who you are, not just as an idea, not just as a concept, but one who meets us in the middle of the pain and challenge of our circumstances and intimately knows what it is that we are experiencing. Jesus, I thank you that we don't interact with you as one who is cold and distant. But one who empathizes to a degree that we can't imagine empathizing with another person, who understands the extent of the pain that we go through, who hurts with us. Jesus, as we sense the weight of this, and we also recognize that not only do you hurt with us, but you overcome the source of the hurt the source of the pain, that you defeat death, that you conquer it. Lord, may we know your nearness and at the same time, may we also know your power. Lord, to undo the thing that no other person or creature or part of creation in all of the world could do. You defeated death. We thank you for the image that we get shown of that in this story about Lazarus. Be with us now and help us to recognize your presence with us as we continue celebrating you in worship this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.